and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 21st through Saturday the 23rd feature Handel's Messiah. The guest conductor for this program, performing his own arrangement and orchestration, will be Sir Andrew Davis. The orchestra is joined by four vocal soloists and the Chicago Symphony Chorus. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Messiah, a work lasting about 2 hours 25 minutes. On April 6, 1759, just eight days before he died, Handel appeared in public for the last time, blind and partially paralyzed by a series of strokes, to attend London's annual performance of his Messiah. Not a year has passed without a performance of it since. Handel couldn't have imagined such a fate for his oratorio, even though its annual presentation was already something of a London ritual at the end of his life, because the idea of playing music of previous generations was nearly unheard of during his lifetime. The concept of music speaking to an entirely different culture wasn't something that would have occurred even to as worldly a man as Handel, born in Germany, trained in Italy, a resident of England, famous throughout Western Europe, fluent in four languages, and exceptionally well-traveled for a citizen of the 18th century when most people lived and died within a few miles of their birthplace. But Messiah was an exception, recognized as a landmark almost at once, and loved more than any other piece of vocal music by generation after generation, each with its own ideas about how Handel's music should sound. Its history followed a very different course from Bach's St. Matthew Passion, composed just 14 years before Messiah, which was all but forgotten after Bach's death and waited until Mendelssohn's famous revival in 1729, a century after the first performance, for its rediscovery. Unlike Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, works that today are also considered icons, Messiah was acclaimed from the start. After the public rehearsal that preceded the first performance in Dublin in 1742, the local journal reported that Messiah was allowed by the greatest judges to be the finest composition of music that ever was heard, an opinion that was challenged surprisingly little in the years ahead, although London, Handel's adopted hometown, was indifferent at first. Performances of Messiah quickly became a kind of sacred rite, with the 1784 presentation in Westminster Abbey, which commemorated the 25th anniversary of the composer's death and featured 261 singers, 229 orchestral musicians, and three conductors, its status as the ultimate musical blockbuster, a guaranteed box office smash, an unparalleled spiritual experience was secure, as was the tradition of monster performances which lasted more than a century and a half, climaxing with the 1883 production in London's Crystal Palace with 500 orchestral players and 4,000 singers a fashion George Bernard Shaw, a lone voice of reason at the time, dismissed as the silly notion that big music requires big bands and choruses. In 1789, Mozart made his own orchestration of Messiah, arranged for greater serviceability for our day, as the title page explained, and it is a labor of love, though also a misrepresentation of Handel's score. No one, it seemed, was immune to Messiah. 
I would uncover my head and kneel down at his tomb, Beethoven said when he was asked about what he thought of the composer of Messiah, an appraisal confirmed by the way he emulated Handel's And He Shall Reign fugue in the Dona Nobis Pachum of his own great Missa Solemnis. Inevitably, for a work of such widespread popularity, there have been skeptics beginning with Charles Jennings himself, who wrote, his Messiah has disappointed me after the very first performance, later admitting that Handel had made a fine entertainment of the text, though not near so good as he might and ought to have done. Attending a performance later in the 17th century, Samuel Johnson chose to compose a Latin poem extolling the virtues of staying at home rather than listen, and Ezra Pound eventually wrote his own verdict, lumping together, Here Handel and boiled potatoes. Messiah was mentioned for the first time in a letter dated July 10, 1741, from Charles Jennings, who is best known today for compiling the Oratorio's text. Handel says he will do nothing next winter, but I hope I shall persuade him to set another scripture collection I have made for him. The subject is Messiah. Handel apparently was easily persuaded, and he composed the music, more than 250 pages of manuscript, in little more than three weeks, beginning on August 22nd. The speed, the concentration of energy, and the lavishness of invention weren't unusual for Handel. He moved on to Samson as soon as he finished Messiah, completing it a month later. The first performance was given not in London, where Handel had lived for nearly 30 years, but in Dublin, Ireland, during the nine months he spent there beginning in late 1741, following a disastrous London season for his operas at the box office. Handel was already popular in Dublin, and there was a great interest in the concerts he announced for the winter and spring. The climax was to come on April 13th with a new work that hadn't yet even been performed in London, Messiah. Anticipation was high. The concert announcement that ran in the Dublin papers requested the favor of the ladies not to come with hoops this day, and asked the men likewise to leave their swords at home to make room for a bigger crowd. The performance was scheduled for noon, allowing the audience to get home in time for dinner, normally served at four, and the doors opened at eleven in the morning. Denied their hoops and swords, some 700 Dubliners jammed Neil's Music Hall, designed for no more than 600. Handel conducted from the keyboard and even played organ concertos, demonstrating his celebrated skill at improvising during the breaks. If subsequent London performances are any judge, he wore his huge signature white wig, and as Bernie later reported, when things went well at the oratorio, it had a certain nod or vibration which manifested his pleasure and satisfaction. Things apparently went very well, and Messiah found such a large and eager public with its first performance that a repeat was scheduled for June 3rd. London didn't share. Dublin's enthusiasm at first, and the performances that Handel gave there both in March 1743 and April 1745 failed to generate excitement. That all changed with the revival Handel led in 1750 to benefit the Foundling Hospital, which launched the successful series of annual charity performances that continued till the composer's death nine years later. By then, Messiah had become a tradition. 
In all, Handel gave 36 performances of his most popular work during the last 17 years of his life, making adjustments of various kinds, vocal lines rewritten, and arias transposed to suit different singers, entirely new pieces added nearly every time. Messiah is unique, even in Handel's output. Unlike traditional oratorios, it has no dramatic characters. The story, as pieced together by Jennings, drawing text from the Old Testament and from the Book of Common Prayer, the service book of the Church of England, is told by an anonymous narrator. This distance from the action is underlined by Handel's decision, unique in his oratorios, to divide the music into parts rather than acts. The texts were so familiar that Handel's listeners all knew the words by heart, forging a rare bond with the audience that finds its ultimate expression in today's do-it-yourself performances. The musical glories of Messiah are often unconventional, although our familiarity with the score tends to distort our sense of what was the norm. There are many unusual touches. The opening recitative, Comfort Ye My People, so melodic and richly accompanied that it sounds like an aria. The aria, O Thou That Tellest Good Tidings, in which the traditional repeat of the main section is hijacked by the full chorus to thrilling effect. A duet, He Shall Feed His Flock, in which the two voices never sing together or even in alternation, but successively, with the soprano magically taking over from the mezzo-soprano at the moment the text shifts from Isaiah to St. Matthew. The arias range from the grand, The Trumpet Shall Sound, to the deeply introspective, He Was Despised, and often demand opera house virtuosity. There's an unusual amount of music for the chorus of Messiah, more than in any other Handel oratorio except Israel and Egypt, although the subtlety, imagination, and variety of Handel's choral writing has long been overshadowed by the brilliant Hallelujah that ends part two. The habit of standing for this number was begun by King George II at one of the first London performances, although it has been suggested that he was merely confused about the time of the next intermission. In his will, Handel left his set of Messiah performing parts to the Foundling Hospital in London, which had already benefited considerably from the composer's annual performances there, in the hope that their Messiah tradition would continue. They are now in the library of the Thomas Coram Foundation, the successor to the hospital, and Messiah itself has become an institution. Program notes by Philip Husher on Handel's Messiah. And this week, Sir Andrew Davis is conducting the orchestra in his own arrangement and orchestration. Here are Sir Andrew Davis's notes on Handel's Messiah. I am far from being the first to elaborate the orchestration of Handel's Messiah. Mozart's version is well known, and Sir Thomas Beecham's famous recording, which features John Vickers, uses the imaginative but overblown and occasionally even verging on the vulgar orchestration made especially for the project by Sir Eugene Goossens. It took me ten months, during which time it dominated my life. My aim was to keep Handel's notes, harmonies, and style intact, but to make use of all the colors available from the modern symphony orchestra to underline the mood and meaning of the individual movements. 
In addition to substantial brass and woodwind forces, the audience will see quite a large number of percussion instruments on stage, including marimba, but they are in fact used sparingly. The organ does occasionally assume its traditional Baroque role of continuo instrument, but for the most part, I reserve it for the climactic moments. In telling the story of this great work, I have endeavored to create moments of drama, pathos, and even sometimes whimsicality, I hope without detracting from the innate power of the original. Part 1. The overture, or symphony as Handel called it, begins with wind band, but the repeat is played by strings and organ, as if to remind us of the original scoring. Thereafter, the whole orchestra plays with great variety of texture. In Comfort Ye, the tenor's first recitative, gentle woodwinds and harp amplify the strings, and horns make a significant contribution to the following aria. The chorus and the glory of the Lord is fuller but not grandiose. The first percussion instrument to appear is in the bass aria, Thus Saith the Lord, the snare drum. The flames of the refiner's fire of the alto aria are evoked by high woodwind and muted trumpets in short, sharp chords. The chorus, and he shall purify, begins in Handel's sound world, but gradually grows, although the overall texture is relatively restrained. In scoring the tiny alto recitative, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, I remembered the beautiful line from a medieval poem, As the sun shineth through the glass, so Jesus in his mother was. A marvelous metaphor for the virgin birth. Solo string harmonics impart a gentle glow. Joining Handel's violins and bass line in O Thou That Tellest is a concertante group of flute, oboe, clarinet, and cello, and still, periodically, the sun shines through the glass. The string's evocation of darkness covering the earth in accompanying the bass soloist is followed by ever-increasing radiance as the Gentiles come to thy light. In The People That Walked in Darkness, I was tempted to use Mozart's amazing chromatic harmonies, but chose instead to maintain the severity of Handel's unison writing, adding the melancholy timbre of the alto flute and English horn. The orchestration for the chorus, For Unto Us a Child is Born, is robust, but after the last climax, the orchestra fades away, leaving us with the thought that perhaps the most important of the Messiah's names is Prince of Peace. What is commonly known as the Pastoral Symphony was called by Handel Pifa. The Pifaro was a reed instrument played in the Apennine Mountains by shepherds, and therefore I have scored here for wind instruments, including the oboe de more, much used by Bach, but surprisingly few composers since. I opted for the short version preferred by Handel, which is less of a set piece and more of an introduction to the wonderful scene of the angels appearing to the shepherds. The Angel of the Lord, by tradition Gabriel, is accompanied by flutes, trombones, and harp. In the chorus, the two trumpets are set apart from and above the rest of the orchestra, in accordance with Handel's instructions, as part of the heavenly host, whose beating wings I have tried to depict with an unusual instrumental combination in the preceding recitative, one of those whimsical moments I mentioned earlier.
The sopranos and the violin's virtuosic call to rejoice greatly is accompanied by harp, some punchy woodwind writing, and in the middle section, flutes and two solo violas. After the short recitative scored for woodwind, the pastoral mood returns. Is it coincidence that the opening notes of He Shall Feed His Flock are the inversion of those of the pifa? Again, the oboe de more and later flute and oboe add color to the strings. A little rising flourish at the beginning of the chorus, His Yoke is Easy, tells us that the shepherds are off to Bethlehem, but brief appearances of the flutes, trombones, and harp combination might make us suspect that Gabriel is still beneficently present, a suspicion confirmed when the trumpets return to their heavenly position to conclude part one. Part two. The brief introduction to the opening chorus, Behold the Lamb of God, is assigned to the same wind band that we heard at the beginning of the symphony. Thereafter, this beautiful and moving piece is accompanied with delicacy and warmth. The mournful sound of the English horn joins the strings in He Was Despised. The three choruses that follow form a remarkable sequence. The dramatic, surely he hath borne our griefs, is followed by a severe fugue in which the strings are silent. They return pizzicato for all we like sheep. I have tried to underline Handel's caustic wit in this brilliant portrayal of the aimless way most of us blunder our way through life. But at the end, Handel most movingly reminds us of Christ's suffering to redeem mankind. For the vilification and mockery of the ensuing recitative, all they that see him laugh him to scorn, and chorus he trusted in God, I have sought to give the orchestra a biting, even brutal tone. This is some of the nastiest music I know. The four tenor pieces now complete this remarkably compressed section dealing with Christ's torment, death, and resurrection. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart uses simply Handel's original strings, which are joined by the alto flute and oboe de more in Behold and See. Strings and punctuating woodwind accompany he was cut off, while the quietly radiant color of solo flute emphasizes the optimism of the final aria, but thou didst not leave his soul in hell. The ensuing chorus, The Lord Gave the Word, and Aria, How Beautiful Are the Feet, illustrate the urgency and exuberance of spreading the word, tambourines, and the ineffable beauty of its message, marimba, coloring the violins. In furious contrast, the bass soloist expresses outrage that kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord. The chorus cries out its rebellious response, lots of brass here, and the tenor in Thou Shalt Break Them promises that these enemies of the Lord shall be dashed in pieces. The tradition of standing up for the Hallelujah Chorus was supposedly started by King George II himself. My own theory is that he was standing up to leave after the distinctly anti-monarchical sentiments just expressed. Just before the end of this most famous of all choruses, I have added sleigh bells, because this passage has always brought to my mind the picture of proudly rearing horses. Part 3. I have given the opening of I Know That My Redeemer Liveth to a gentle solo clarinet, 
only woodwinds and brass accompany Since by Man Came Death. The bass recitative is colored by harp and woodwinds, but in the aria, I have left Handel's original scoring intact. I love the sound of trumpet and organ. The final chorus is grand and majestic, though the final Amen fugue begins with organ accompaniment only before building back up to the triumphal conclusion. Everything I have done instrumentally stems from an enormous respect, even awe, which I feel towards this supreme masterpiece. If any of my ideas should help to illuminate any part of it, I shall be happy. It was a labor of love and is dedicated to the memory of my parents. Notes by Sir Andrew Davis and before that by Philip Husher on Handel's Messiah. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.